debates on Wednesday morning. We'll all gather together like this. We won't have a speaker. Everybody can continue socializing. Right, um, that's Eight o'clock, uh, we'll say the benediction. No, not, not today. We want to hear it. seem like a well worth, uh, well worthwhile get together. Yeah. Well, we have a speaker this morning, so we, have, we don't want to invade his time. It's sure nice to see so many men out this morning. How many of you here for the very first time? Would you stand up? I hope you've enjoyed what you've seen so far, and uh, we'll be having more of these meetings, and we want you to know that you're perfectly welcome. Just a couple of announcements. I presume that you've signed those cards along the way, or you put your names on the cards. This is our way of doing two things. Number one, knowing how much we have to pay for the, the gathering this morning to the Holiday Inn. And the other, to put you on our mailing list so we can keep you informed as to the future meetings. We have no way of deferring the costs of these meals except by the bucket at the door. So if you'll take care of the bucket as you pass out, <laughs> uh, we'd appreciate that. This will be the last meeting for this session, for this time of the for this season. We'll be starting again in the fall, and with your name on our mailing list, we'll keep you informed. Watch for our new beginnings in September. Our speaker today is Fred Trinkline. Fred's been one of the faithful attenders of these meetings. Best way to get these fellows to attend is to have them come as a speaker. <laughs> we had Fred Trinkline as a speaker one day, and he's been coming ever since. <laughs> and uh, we're delighted to have him back with us today. Fred. Uh, teaches school, teaches at the Lutheran High School, also teaches astronomy at Nashville Community College, is an author of textbooks and so on, but I'll let him tell his story. Fred Trinkline. Thank you very much, Gus. What a beautiful day this is today, and one result of it is that we're starting earlier than we usually do, and so I better work in a few more minutes of humor that I heard at the front <laughs> table here before. I'd much rather be down there sitting with my dear friends than up here, I can assure you. These meetings have been a real blessing. It's not just because I was asked to come here before, but they are a real up in my life, as I'm sure many of you can also testify to. I heard the other day on television that there is a new drug that helps your memory. I was going to get it on the way here, but I forgot what it was. <laughs> I do remember a story I told last time, though, and I'd like to repeat that. You know, this is the end of the school year, and teaching, of course, is a rather nerve-wracking experience, and it's no different at Lutheran High School. I have a physics class there, and I had a test the other day and told the students the results have been very miserable. I want all the dumbbells in this class, please rise. Nobody got up. Finally, a student in the back of the room got to his feet and I said, do you mean to say you admit you're a dumbbell? He said, no, but I hate to see you standing there alone. <laughs> so it's time for the end of the year and a little relaxation and rest. 
I'd like to base the remarks that I want to make this morning on Psalms 139, verse 8. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. I want to testify to the truth of those words. I hate to make personal references in talking to people, and yet in listening to the stories and the inspirational accounts that men have given here over the years that I've attended, I felt that perhaps it would help someone else to hear some of the things that bear out the truth of what the Lord says in Psalms, the way it has happened in my own life. I teach science, I teach religion, and for many people this is a very strange combination. Well, I found out that as I grew up, many people felt it was not only a strange combination, but an impossible one. People say, how can you do that? Teach science and religion, aren't they contradictory? And I finally worked up a standard answer. Somebody said, what is a, what is Christian physics? And they say it with a kind of a smirk. And I say physics, Christian physics is physics that is taught by a Christian. <laughs> and usually the smirk leaves at that time. Well, I want to tell you how I got into that somewhat contradictory position in many people's minds. I like to think of the passage that we've read, Psalms 139, as a testimony from the Lord that says, I am with you when you're up and when you're down. He says, if, I, if people ascend up into heaven or if they descend into hell, God is there. God is a God of the ups and the downs. Few people have difficulty praying to the Lord for help when they're down. But many people forget to pray to the Lord when they're up. God has come to me, and I had to learn that the hard way, in the ups and the downs. And as I think back, the first real up in my life was my Christian childhood. It wasn't a conversion later in life in a very dramatic manner. It was a very thorough grounding in the scripture in a Christian home. I wish sometimes that I could have had a very dramatic turning point in the way that I have heard related here over and over, but as I think about it, there are pluses and minuses to all the ways in which the Lord brings people to faith. I had a very devout mother, and she was very interested that every day when I went to a Christian school that I would know my memory work. We were asked to memorize Bible passages, and not only did we stop there, but they took scripture very literally in those days, and we had to memorize hymns and songs and spiritual psalms and so on, and we had to memorize the first, second, third, fourth verse in German and English. I was confirmed in both languages, and I was impressed with the fact that when I walked up for that confirmation, the passage that had been chosen for me by the pastor was picked by God himself. Actually, the pastor probably just picked it out of a hat, <laughs> but the Lord had his hand there, and I'll give it to you in German first and then in English, because I still say it in German every day since I was taught as a youth, if you pray in German, it doesn't have to be translated on the way up. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. 
I remember the story of a pastor coming to a dear old lady who was sick and reading the Bible with her and said, let's start in the beginning where God came to Adam and Eve and said, Adam, where are you? And the woman very feebly with her last strength raised her hand in objection said, Pastor, not. He didn't say, Adam, where are you? He said, Adam, wo bist du? <laughs> but the passage that was chosen for me was, Der Herr ist treu, der wird euch stärken und bewahren vor dem Argen. That means in English, God is faithful. He will establish you and keep you from evil. And how true that turned out to be. What a high that was at confirmation to testify to your faith and to promise the Lord that you would remain true to his word for the rest of your life. And then as a seal of that promise to take for the first time his body and blood in communion. If a person could stay on a spiritual high like that all his life, he would have no difficulty warding off all the problems and temptations. But then there are the downs as well as the ups. And one of the first downs came when I was warned in school by well-meaning teachers that I should not study science. Because somehow if you study science, you learn about all the wonders of the universe and you forget to trust God. Now the way in which that was emphasized in my Christian school was that in the seventh grade, you were given a voice test. And if your voice qualified, you could sing in the choir. If your voice broke at that time and you couldn't sing very well, they put you in another room and there they studied science. <laughs> well, I wanted to get in there. So I faked it. I made it sound like my voice was breaking so that I could get into that room and do all those strange things like rubbing a rabbit's fur on a glass rod and all those strange things. Well, the fakery didn't last very long because when I went on to school, to a Lutheran school to learn to be a teacher, it was required at that time that you had to study music. Whether you wanted to or not, whether you had any ability or not, I tried and tried to fail, and I didn't. I had to learn how to play the church organ, and that was the next lesson that the Lord taught me, humility. <laughs> when I got out of school, you're in the Lutheran system, you're assigned to a position. You don't make a choice, you know. And it says, do you have a preference? And I said, yes, I have a preference. I'll go anywhere in the world, but I don't want to play the church organ. <laughs> well, I went to the uttermost parts, it says here, the uttermost parts of the sea. I got sent to the uttermost parts of the land. There was no sea in western Oklahoma. I mean, it was dry. <laughs> there were no trees. If you wanted a tree, you had to dig a little hole and pour water in it, and it maybe get three feet high. And I was put in charge of church music. <laughs> I had to play the church organ, direct the choir, the whole thing. I have never perspired like I'm not as nearly as nervous up here today as I was every Sunday morning playing that church organ. And the happiest day of my life was when I got a position elsewhere where I didn't have to play. People said, oh, how calm he is up there. I remember my mother-in-law telling Margaret, my wife, Margaret, you really ought to iron his shirts better when he's playing the church organ up there. He looks all rumpled. Well, what it was, it was totally soaked in perspiration. So that was humility. That was a down. And the Lord said, now that you've learned how to be humble, maybe now you're ready. Well, I went on to graduate school. I wanted to teach science. 
I had to learn more science. And then the paradox began. I went to Northwestern University, a very good school, and I thought here I would learn science and its relation to religion because the Methodist Church is the one that started Northwestern University. By regulation, it still has to have a majority of directors of that church body. Well, when I walked into a psychology class, if you're going to be a teacher, you have to take a course called Abnormal Psychology. <laughs> I found out when I started teaching why that is. And the first day in that classroom, the professor gets to the front and says, gentlemen and ladies, there weren't too many of those, I'm here, if you have any faith in Christ or in God, I'm here to destroy it. I thought, see, in graduate school, you write all these things down. If you're an undergraduate, the professor comes in and says, good morning, you say good morning. If you're in graduate school, you walk in, he says, good morning, you write it down. It's my lecture. I wrote that down. I thought, this is pretty good now. Where, uh, where is the lesson in this? Well, it turned out to be true. He wanted to destroy our faith. He said, I have all these degrees in theology myself, and I know there's nothing to it, and therefore I'm here to tell you that believing in God is a lot of nonsense. Well, that's not what I was warned about. I was warned that if I go into a science class, there we're going to learn about the wonders of the universe and that God is not necessary in explaining them. Well, it didn't happen that way. This is a paradox. How come? I went into a science class and a math class, and there were professing Christians in the front of the room. A math prof, particularly, I remember, who said, I'm here as a Christian, and I want to tell you how wonderful it is to be with, in harmony with the will of God. What a paradox. When I started teaching, the paradox was not resolved. I noticed that people who were teaching science were not the unbelievers and atheists that many of them were making them out to be. And yet in other courses in psychology and philosophy, there was all kinds of rationalism and humanism and whatnot. I wanted to know. I wanted to know what is the answer to this dichotomy. Is it possible that God could make a universe and God could make a human mind and that when you look at the universe and use your mind that there would be a conflict? Well, to make the long story short, we went from Oklahoma to Wisconsin and then one day a call came from New York at the Long Island Lutheran High School. I'll never forget our youngest son. We have five children and Hans, our youngest, whom Miss Lamberties knows very well, he was only a few years old at that time, and I got into his bedroom before we came, and he was praying. He knew we were leaving Wisconsin, going to New York, and his last words there in the prayer were, Well, God, this is goodbye. We're moving to New York. There's a message there somewhere. Well, time went on, and then the Lord showed again, that you don't prescribe what he should do in your life. You don't say, Lord, help me, like Bill Forsberg was saying before about a person who's lost in the woods, and they said, should we pray? And he said, well, never mind, God. Here comes someone to show us the way out. <laughs> you don't pray in that way. You pray, Lord, here I am. You do your thing. The more I taught science and religion at Lutheran High School, the more I wondered, am I really telling it the way it is? Do I really know the field of science? Do I really know the scientists, which is more important? And do I know the word of God the way I should? I'd like to get out there and talk to these people who are leaders in these fields. What is a Lutheran teacher's salary? How do you go into all the world? 
Well, a man walked to the door one day and said, I understand that you'd like to go to different countries and talk to the leaders in science around the world to see what they think about God. I said, yes, I sure would. He said, I'm setting up a bank account for you. I want you to go wherever you want. Wow. Take your wife, leave your five kids at home, take your wife along, <laughs> go wherever you want and write about it. Well, I'd always wanted to be a writer. And I had done a little dibbling and dabbling and writing here and there. And he said, okay, on your own, you write this up. Then when you come home, we'll look for a publisher. Wow, a carte blanche. God said, put up or shut up, see. <laughs> so I went to the library and I looked in a book of all the world scientists. I looked up all the Nobel Prize winners. I looked up the heads of research institutes of IBM, of Polaroid around the world, Hext Incorporated in Germany, all over, and wrote him a letter. And I said, I'd like to come and talk to you about God. And to my great surprise, 50% of them said yes. What an amazing response to a questionnaire from a total unknown, 50%. Some said, we haven't talked to a news reporter or anybody for 20 years because we're always misquoted. You come. I went up to Bad Piermont in Germany where Einstein's best friend, Max Born, was living and he said, and he was in his 80s, he said, no one has ever asked me what I think about God. Let's sit down and talk about it. Well, I don't want to take a lot of time talking about the results of that experience. It was a real high. It was something that I found out later had never been done before. People, when the book came out, said no one had ever gone in an unbiased manner and just asked these people, what do you think about God? And that's where my eyes were opened when I found out that the people who study science are no different from the people who study anything else. First of all, I found out they were very humble people. Well, maybe they could afford to be if they were on top. One of them would say, notice how humble I am. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe they weren't as humble on their way up. Some of them said that. They didn't have much time for God, they said, when they were on their way up, going for the big prize and all that. And they do go after it, you know. But once they're on top, there's nothing else to do. They said, now we find out that we really need God. Over and over, they said, the people who think that science leads away from God must be rather stupid. They said, the more we study science, the more it brings us true knowledge of God. So that's the message of the book I finally came out with, that probably a larger percentage of the world scientists believe in God and in the importance of relying on him and his guidance and creating hand in the universe than perhaps any other field, because they see the power of God in the universe more clearly than in many other instances. That was just the beginning of the ups. I had no idea that before it was all over and as a result of this writing effort, the publisher of the most popular physics text in the country would come and say, we need a new author. Why don't you join our team, which I've been doing now for the last 15 or 20 years. I had no idea that I would be assigned as a newspaper reporter to interview the Russian and American spacemen before they went up and shook hands. I had no idea that when a Nobel conference would be called, and every so often the Nobel Prize winners of the world are called together, and the last time this happened in any great number was in 1975, when they were all invited to a college in Minnesota to talk about the relationship between science and religion. And the sponsor of this meeting said, you come, you interview each one of them. We heard you did this thing with people around the world, 
as each one gets off the airplane, here's a newsroom, you sit down, and you find out from them what they believe about God and about the future. I had no idea that I would be invited as a newspaper reporter, and it's amazing when you wear that little thing in your hat, the doors that opens up, to go to a meeting in Houston where the leaders of all the Lutheran churches in America would meet and talk about the future. I had no idea there were 17 different Lutheran church bodies, for one thing. Some of them very small. There are two congregations in one synod. But anyhow, they were all invited there, and we talked to each other, and for a number of meetings of this kind, I found out that indeed there is a relationship between science and religion, and it's not an unnatural one. It's the same God who does both. So maybe this is the message that I was supposed to tell people about. But there was one thing I hadn't learned yet, and I had to learn it the hard way. I was going morning, noon, and night, teaching all day at Lutheran High School, teaching astronomy at Nassau Community College in the evening, writing books on weekends, raising a family of five kids, and relying on myself, I found out. You can't do that very long. You're going to burn out. And I burned out. Some of my friends sitting in front here know very well that that's what happened. I had a classic depression. You don't want to wish that on anybody. And when I read the passage, if I take the wings of the morning and if I make my bed in hell, the closest thing I think on this earth that a person can come to, to that description, is a depression. You don't sleep anymore, you lose weight, you lose your memory, you lose your concentration, you don't want to do anything, you try and try, you want to resign from your job, it got worse and worse. I sought professional help. I went to a person who was recommended to me as one of the top psychoanalysts on the East Coast. And I'm not deprecating the analysis field. There are a great many different approaches to analysis, but I happened to get one who didn't say anything. I mean, that was his approach. <laughs> oh, say a word. An hour. And I would sit in his office, and he would listen to me for an hour, and didn't say a word. The only time he spoke was when he gave me his bill. <laughs> and I said, Doctor, what about your advice? And he said, you have to do that yourself. You have to help yourself. Well, that's not how it turned out. One day, all alone in the house, I got up and I started praying out loud, which I had not done before, although I had heard Margaret do this and I had been to meetings, thank God, where people were not afraid to pray out loud and to let the Lord know in no uncertain terms that they need his help. And I said, Lord, if you're real, if I'm going to make it, I'd like to see you come right here and change my life because it isn't going anywhere. There were no flashes of lightning, none of this. I went to bed and for the first time, instead of as we were brought up in Germany, you know, you have a little nightcap, your beer is liquid bread in Germany, so you forget <laughs> your troubles. I had gone from that to a dependency on prescription drugs that the doctor had given me, Valium and who knows what else. That night for the first time, without any kind of inducement, I slept peacefully. I got up the next morning, I looked at the desk, it was piled high with things that had been totally ignored for months. I dug into them with relish. And I said, wait a minute, there's something different here. I felt a warmth that I had never felt before. 
And I started making notes. You see, when you're in graduate school, so you take notes. Well, when you write, you're always taking notes. You never know when you're going to use this next. And I said, there's something changing here. And I started writing the things down that had changed. And before I was through, in a few days, I had made a list of over 40 items that were not different in my life. Well, to say it very succinctly, things went from there to bigger highs than I had ever enjoyed in my life. The Lord says, all right, now you have learned not only that I can give you opportunities, but that you must make your faith part of your heart, not only of your head, and stop relying on yourself. As your opportunities are, so will my strength be. And after this, things became even busier than before, but without just Trinkline doing it. Now the Lord is in charge. Well, I want to, in the few closing minutes here, tell you three or four things that I have learned in trusting in the Lord and in the opportunities that he has given me to talk to people around the world about the relationship between his marvelous creation and our own personal faith, what that has told me. It can be put in very few simple statements. One of them is that I learned that man can politicize religion right out of a country. I didn't mention the one high that we're continuing to participate in that I had no idea when I was in that room rubbing cat's furs and glass rods together that someday I would be chasing solar eclipses around the world. We've been on six continents now, last year in Siberia, next year in Java. When we were in Siberia last summer, and that's not a pleasant experience, the eclipse is pleasant, it's beautiful, it's powerful, it's a real dramatic impact. People who see one want to see the next one. How powerless we feel when we stand there and see the power and love of God at work when it gets pitch dark at noontime. Well, this happened in Siberia last time. You had to go to Russia to see it. There was no other land where it was available to see. And the Russians gave us permission to come in there. They took us eight hours by plane out of Moscow into the woods, another three hours with a boat out into the wilderness. And there, in spite of the fact that God was revealing himself in his power and majesty and love, here were people who were professing atheism. Maybe not deep in their hearts, they weren't so atheistic as they were saying. But the powerful impact came to all of us who were there. If we really try hard, we can politicize religion officially right out of our country. Well, even in this country, I learned in attending the Nobel conference in Minnesota that I referred to before, that man can also intellectualize God right out of his religion. The meeting of the Nobel Prize people, and there were more assembled there at any one time, we were told, than ever before since 1900 when the prize was given, except when President Kennedy invited him to the White House. And here the Nobel Prize winners and their 4,000 listeners invited theologians to speak to them after they had addressed the audience to show the role of God in science. And what happened was, that one of the top theologians they had invited there from Yale University Divinity School gets up and tells the people that he no longer believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the scientists looked at each other and they looked at me and they said, what is this? 
What is going on in the church today? This made headlines. Theologian loses his faith, it said in the paper. This man had intellectualized God right out of his religion. We can do even worse than that. In this country, we can, with some effort, legislate the why out of life in our schools and textbooks. Now, what do I mean by that? One of the Nobel Prize winners told me that in class, when you teach science, be sure and tell your students that in science, you can only answer questions that begin with how. When it comes to a question that begins with why, the answer is God only knows. I've taught my students that so well that whenever I make a mistake and ask say, anything that starts with why in class, the whole class shouts, God only knows. <laughs> so you have to watch how you say this. <laughs> Not long ago, I was on a series of talks in the public high schools of Long Island on my experiences around the world with the scientists of the world. And I got a phone call the next day from one of the principals, and I won't mention which school it is, and, uh, and he said, we understand that you're scheduled to speak to our student body on science and religion. I said, that's correct. He said, well, I can't let you come. Why not? Because you mentioned God. And I said, what's wrong? He said, we have enough trouble without God in this school. <laughs> There's another message there. <laughs> we have legislated God out of our high schools, not out of college. At Nassau Community College, I can talk about God. I have for years, and I can tell what faith I am. I can even ask the students what faith they are. There's no PTA meeting that complains about it. <laughs> but somehow, in grade school and high school, we say, no, you cannot talk about God. Remember when Billy Graham was criticized for what he said in Moscow about freedom over there? He said, I do not have the freedom in the United States to talk about God in the public schools. Now, that's something to think about. Now, there are different viewpoints, of course, of whether we should have prayer in the schools. But I'd like to read to you what Benjamin Franklin said when this country was founded. And he was addressing the formation meeting for the Constitution of the United States. He said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of the truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly. Every morning we proceed to business. And that's how prayer began in Congress. This prayer, if you want to look it up, is in this month's Saturday Evening Post. And there are quotations in there from 35 other presidents of the United States in which they pray to God for help for our country. We've got to change this law. What we're doing is not teaching freedom of religion. We're teaching freedom from religion. We can do another thing if we're not careful, and that is that we can lose our faith in God in this country by default because there is a concerted effort by a group of people called humanists who are trying to destroy all reference to God in our schools and public life. I have before me the Humanist Manifesto. If you want to do some scary reading, 
read the Humanist Manifesto and what this group of people is dedicated to do. On the back is a sheet you can sign. They want one million signers who will say that they believe the following. They say religion is no good, but their, their creed here starts out, we believe. <laughs> we believe that faith in a prayer-hearing God assumed to love and care for persons and to hear and understand their prayers and can do something about it is an outmoded faith. We find no evidence for a belief in the existence of God. It is meaningless. We believe that people should have the right to sexual exploration. We believe that they should have the right to commit euthanasia and suicide. And it goes on and on. These people are dedicated to this faith, more dedicated than many Christians are, I'm afraid, to theirs, because they're doing something about it. They're going around campaigning to get hold of the media, to get a hold of the schools, and to eradicate God from public life in this country. I asked one of the astronauts, what do you think of the fact that the humanists and Mrs. O'Hare are campaigning to get rid of the mention of God in space and reading the Bible from the moon and so on? And the man told me, when Mrs. O'Hare gets up here, she can do what she wants. <laughs> but when I'm up here, I'm going to read the Bible. Because every one of the American astronauts, he told me, had a deeply moving spiritual experience when he went up into space. Another thing I learned, and this was the most amazing thing to me, is that when you really try, it is remarkably simple to talk to the people in the world who are considered important and big shots, to talk to them about God. We're always so afraid, but the fear is of our own making. God will open the doors. I mean, you read about a person like Carl Sagan, and you say, how in the world could I get to talk to Carl Sagan, who made Cosmos and all this? Well, I'll tell you how. I picked up the phone, looked up his number, and called him, and he answered the phone. And I said, Dr. Sagan, I'd like to come and talk to you about God. He said, come. I walked in his office. His secretary said, how did you get in here? He's got an appointment with Johnny Carson and everybody else. I said, I'd call him on the phone. And we had a great conversation. And unfortunately, Carl Sagan is a humanist. He's one of only two or three of all the people at random that I spoke to around the world who said, I do not believe in God. Unfortunately, he's the one who made cosmos. I found out it takes a real effort to deny the existence of God and to reject his gospel. You know, the Bible claims to be the word of God. It says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, all scripture. And the worst thing that can happen in our country is that we lose that faith through intellectualism or through the efforts of humanism because it is the only power of salvation. It says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We have to read it with an open mind, not with preconceived notions, and God will do the rest. I thank God that I'm in a church, and I wouldn't belong to it if it didn't teach that the Bible is the word of God. One church after the other in this country is losing that faith. Pick up yesterday's New York Times, for example, in which it says that at a convention of the Southern Baptists, 
the president got up and said, there is no room in this denomination for humanists or those who do not accept the absolute inerrancy of the Bible. It is inexcusable for a Southern Baptist to say he's a humanist and is proud of it. It is inexcusable for a Southern Baptist to say Genesis is political rhetoric and not historical fact. He goes on and on. The Southern Baptists, thank God, are the most rapidly growing denomination of any Christian church in the country with that kind of faith. I was happy to see in the Times yesterday that my own Missouri Synod of the Lutheran Church of the top 10 denominations in the country is also gaining members and believes that the Bible is the word of God. I thank God that I can teach at Lutheran High School where I can show what real academic freedom is. I can talk to my students about science and God. The relation between the two, not that it is a dichotomy. I want to close with a little thing I call a scientific parable. A scientific parable is a story in science that has a religious meaning. It has to do with a university in Moscow, in Russia rather, fictitious called Smolensk. Scientists at Smolensk deciding to develop a fish that could live out of water. A fish that could live out of water. So they picked a healthy red herring. They bred, crossbred, hormone, chromosomed until at length they had a fish that could live at least for a little while out of water. The local commissar was not satisfied though. True, the fish had survived till now on rarefied gas, but how about reactionary tendencies? He suspected they still had a yen for water. You have neglected education, he said. Start over, and this time do not neglect education. So again, they bred, crossbred, and hormoned, and chromosomed. And this time, they did not neglect education, down to the various tiniest reflex. The result was a red herring that would rather die than get its tail wet. The slightest suggestion of humidity filled the new herring with dread. Thought control had done its perfect work, and with the possible exception of the red herring, Everyone was happy. Surely this year's Lenin Prize would go to the scientists of Smolensk University. But the world must see this triumph of Soviet research. The commissar who had thought of education must take the fish on tour. Somewhere in Hungary, the tragedy occurred. Accidentally, according to reports, the red herring fell into a pool of water. Deep in the green stuff it lay. Eyes and gills clamped shut, afraid to move, lest it become wetter. And of course, it could not breathe. Every reflex said it couldn't breathe. Never did a fish so wet feel more like a fish out of water. <laughs> but it had to breathe, and there was nothing else to breathe, only water. So the red herring drew a tentative gillful. Its eyes bulged, it breathed again. Its jaw flew open, it flicked a fin, then another, and it wiggled with delight. Then it darted away. The fish had discovered water. And with that same kind of wonder, men conditioned by a world that rejects him discover God. For in him we live and move and have our being. Thank you very much. scientist friend that I had who said there's no conflict between science and religion 
because God is the author of both. So let's dismiss with a word of prayer our Heavenly Father. We thank and praise you for this time of refreshment. We ask your blessing upon each one here and guide and direct us and go with us and we leave this place and we'll praise you for it. For it's in Christ our Savior's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a good summer and look for I met a profoundly scandalous fact in the face of this lousy, rotten scandal that not one of us will get away with it. In the face of this, we have simply refused to lie down and we have constructed these great anti-worlds, these worlds of anti-matter, which are art and literature. Well, all of this brings me to a confession. I've wanted to talk to you for 10 years now, ever since I read in Bluebeard's Castle. I've wanted to talk with you because it was obvious to me in that book and in much of what I've read of you since that you are wrestling, have wrestled, will continue to wrestle with the single question of our time, in my judgment, at least the question that has tormented my own, my own journey, and it's this. If art, philosophy, literature, language are humanizing and civilizing, how do you explain the springing up at the core of European civilization of the crime of the century, of the bestial political crimes of the totalitarian state. If I could answer that, I would be at peace and stop working and writing properly. You're not at peace. I'm not at peace at all. Because I, of that. Because of that. The great Jeffersonian hope, others had hoped it, but in Jefferson it has a kind of crystalline power and dignity, was as we learn more as our imagination becomes more educated, certain kinds of bestiality won't be possible to us anymore. We based on this hope, and one sees it in our 19th century schools, universities, but also in the modern hope of education. One sees it in a figure such as Lincoln, supremely, in Matthew Arnold, in others, that the school, the library, are the great instruments of making man compassionate and humane, and giving to him the realization that any other human being is an infinitely complicated and valuable presence. It's great liberal hope. The great liberal And out of a culture charged, as perhaps no other was, Germany, Central Europe, with the cult of high education, of art, out of the world of the symphony concert, the university seminar, the museum, the gallery, comes the terror, the ultimate terror, and the bestiality of totalitarianism. And this goes on today, of course. Many people say this is an absolutely silly question uh, because the one thing doesn't connect with the other. And I know that's totally dishonest. Because if I'm allowed to say that a great novel or a great poem has done me good, I must be allowed to ask, can it do me evil? I simply can't cheat. I can't have it both ways. If a thing is important enough to change me, I've got to ask, how does it do? In the beginning of our conversation, it seemed to me that one could suggest that when a thing becomes too abstract, too concentratedly intellectual, too mental, without involving the responsibility of the whole personality, it could begin to boomerang. That is to say, we weep, oh, buckets, as did many Nazis, over the deaths in the novel, uh, over the wonderful sad passage in the symphony, and over some terrible scene in a play, we go out into the street, and the human beings out there mean nothing to us. They have become empty fictions, and we treat them accordingly. I'm very, very tempted to do more thinking 
along the lines of a overdevelopment, a kind of cancer of the imagination, of abstraction, of intellectuality for its own sake. Something can go very, very wrong in the processes of training our sensibility. That's only the beginning of an answer. There may be something else. There is something that really scares me in the West. The scientist, even the most modest young graduate student, can say, well, I can now do things Newton could. I can even do things Einstein could. And next week, there can be some fantastic new things. He is moving with the arrow of time. In art and literature in the West, this is not clear. The statement, there shall never again be as great a writer as Shakespeare. The statement, no one will write music again like Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart. The statement, Michelangelo and Leonardo are plastic and graphic artists whom we shall never equal again. Unprovable. The grammar should start screaming, hit you on the head and say, stop saying things like that. Uh, because, what are you saying? What are you doing when you say it? And yet, it is just possible. There is the haunting possibility that we come after the great moments in art and literature. That we come in every sense a long way after. That we are the epilogue to Western genius. And if there is anything in this idea, and I'm very, very hesitant, and I'm trying to live it in me, then there could be a terrible hatred against culture right from within our cultural establishment. And then some of the savagery of those in the Soviet Union in Nazi Germany today in Argentina, where the life of that greatest, perhaps living writer, Borges, is in constant danger. Those people are saying, I can't bear that load anymore. I'll do anything to smash, to throw off my shoulders and back this enormity of pressure and glory, which is mine, which I don't just want to transmit. In Goering's animal outcry, when I hear the word culture, I reach for my pistol. There is something which, however chilling and obscene, has an off pesos in it, too. Well, Hitler, what would Hitler said of the Jews if they invented the conscience of mankind, the idea of the monotheistic God who arose at Mount Sinai, preached by the prophets, permeated the parables of Jesus, presented such an ideal that a culture simply could not tolerate coexisting with that ideal and had to try to eliminate it. It almost breaks our back. The load of hope, of dreams, which the great Western legacy, Judaic and Greek,